This podcast is with one of my best friends in the whole world, Caitlin Howe. But when we first met, it wasn't a friendship, it was a romantic connection. So we tell the story of how we met that ultimately became an engagement and we were together for six years and then ended up splitting up. And Caitlin tells her journey, which brought her into her own dark night of the soul in Las Vegas. Ultimately, us coming back together as friends, her becoming close friends with Whitney and with Vailana, and now at the place where she's going to serve the role as the best man in my upcoming big wedding, non-pandemic wedding with Vailana. She is the poet queen on Instagram, an amazing poet, one of the coaches in Fit for Service, and one of my closest allies and resources for knowledge, consolation, or anything I need. And you may have heard her on some other podcasts, but this time we really get to get into the details of our story from start to finish and her story from start to finish as well. Enjoy the podcast with Caitlin Howe. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Onnit. And what I want to talk to you about with Onnit today is just how much I've been loving Alpha Brain Instant lately. So typically, I've just been using Alpha Brain Instant for podcasts and for special events, but I've been finding myself realizing that my entire day is better when I take Alpha Brain. And I used to think like, oh, maybe it's because I had a podcast and that energized me. And then I finally realized like, well, yeah, the podcast was great because I had a very focused conversation, but it's also the fact that that's what got me taking Alpha Brain Instant that day. And that is actually making a significant difference. And look, I should have probably recognized this a little bit earlier. You know, I mean, shit, I was a major part of inventing Alpha Brain. You know, like for me not to even really realize what a significant difference it's making for me overall, even when I don't have something important, it was pretty powerful for me to recognize that. This is now something, I don't do it every single day, but it's not just on days where I have podcasts and recordings and important writing stretches. I'm using it more frequently and I'm really enjoying just how it's making me feel overall, period. Just my brain seems to fire better. I have more energy. That person that texts me, I'm more likely to text them back because I have that energy and make those calls that I, in between the things, I just, I just feel more alive, more alert. It's helping my mood, you know, in interesting, positive ways as well. And, uh, so this is kind of a rediscovery of something for me that I've been familiar with for shit, almost 11 years now. And just thought I would share that. Also, the Alpha Brain Instant flavors are bomb, and there's so many of them now. So keep a lookout for that. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey if you're interested in checking out Alpha Brain Instant and saving 10% off of everything. Once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey. And finally, we have Branch Basics. So one of the things that I can't stand about traveling is all of the shitty, harsh cleaning products that you'll find in different Airbnbs and hotel rooms, you just can feel that there's a lot of toxic chemicals that are being used to both wash your dishes, clean your sheets, wipe down your bathroom counter. This is something that really needs to change from the chemicals that we put in our food supply to the chemicals that we put in our food supply through the dishes that we're actually using and through the sheets that we're wearing, the way in which chemicals are absorbed through our skin, all of this needs to be reimagined and Branch Basics has taken care of that. They have non-toxic cleaning products of all different varieties. The packaging looks cool too. So you'll look stylish. You know that you're actually providing your home and your guests in your home with really actually clean products that they can use. 
Branch Basics is better for babies. It's better for pets. It's better for you. It's a clear, easy choice. So check it out. You'll get 15% off all starter kits at branchbasics.com slash Aubrey Marcus, just like it sounds, branchbasics.com slash Aubrey Marcus, and you will save 15%. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Caitlin Howe. Caitlin Howe. (laughs) Aubrey Marcus. Let's tell everybody a story. Let's tell the story of the first time we met. You tell it from your perspective first. My perspective. Uh, I was a young woman living in San Antonio, Texas. And on the occasional adventurous weekend, I like to get out of town and go party it up in Austin, where everything was more exciting. (laughs) And on one special weekend... No offense to you, San Antonians. Yes. Love you, San Antonio. Also true, but no offense. (laughs) You know you do it too. Uh, On one special weekend, I came up and I had the pleasure of making a bunch of new friends that lived at one of the condos downtown, which was very exciting to me. And we went to a nightclub called Groove. What year was this? 2007. 2007. Way back, 2007, so 15 years And it was G-R-U with an umlaut, (laughs) or was it one of those bars? Oh, yes. It might have been an umlaut. Umlaut and a V. To be honest, I never knew what it was called until right now, but (laughs) you are correct. Two dots, umlaut. Umlaut. (laughs) And um, I was giving it hell on the dance floor, dancing and... Just full and by dance floor, she means the top of a couch. <laughs> yes, <laughs> with a little, little, little hard area for high heels. I've always had a thing for getting to the highest point in any establishment. Everybody has a thing for that. <laughs> it's true. I actually, the greatest thing I did when I was in in my, I was a social chair at my fraternity at the University of Richmond. I was a Kappa Sigma. I actually don't know if I've even mentioned that on my podcast before. It's so long ago. But so during my reign, my my like two and a half year reign as social chair, I built this gigantic pyramid that was like Tenochtitlan or something. (laughs) (laughs) It was and it was a dance pyramid and it would naturally like the most audacious, best dancing, best looking you know, people would just climb naturally to the top. <laughs> they would take the summit. <laughs> they, would take, they would summit it. Like like Seize the greatest. Their glory. <laughs> and like the top piece was like a three by three, four by four wow. thing. And so it would just be like two people up there getting it off and me and somebody else. <laughs> he built a pyramid that he could summit for sure. And the, only the fittest would make it to the top. Yeah. Oh my God. I didn't even know that. Yeah. He does have Put it some, right in the lodge, right in the Kappa Sigma lodge. He has some epic stories from college. This guy has been making history <laughs> for years, <laughs> you guys. <laughs> it, it's true. It's true. Big and old I, So I graduated too. college 2004 ish, I think, five ish, four ish, yeah. four ish, 2004. So this was like only a couple of years out of college. You were 26. I was 26. Maybe. You were 26. I was, you might have been 25. I was 23. I'm 39 now for context. And um, and Mickey Avalon came on the oh, speakers. Boy. <laughs> 
And I knew all the words to every song by Mickey Avalon that was popular back then. I mean, I have a... I have an interesting thing where I take a lot of pride in the wide range of genres of music that I can <laughs> recite the lyrics to. And so I was belting it out. I felt so free. I didn't know anybody in Austin. And I was like, I'm here to just burn down the club. And I'm dancing and I'm singing. And across the crowd, over all the bobbing heads, I see this man with a chain on his <laughs> on his necklace that had like it had like a naked woman it, it was, was like a rosary <laughs> with a with like a naked woman yeah it was pretty epic it was a vibe i was like he's got style and we were both singing the lyrics to mickey avalon and nobody else was and from that moment we're like i see you i see you and we how did I know way. Mickey Avalon? I don't even know, <laughs> but I did. And I was like, nobody else knew it, and you knew it. Uh-huh. And Mickey Avalon gets a little bit of the credit, but also that was just a really good excuse to go over and start dancing with <laughs> exactly. you. Exactly. So we did the we did that primal mating dance where you dance your way through the crowd and somehow end up in each other's radius. And that was the beginning Didn't of I invite a very you for long tea? journey. Yes, you did. I invited would you like tea? <laughs> He invited me for tea. You said he, yes to the tea. Yes. Yes to the tea. You stood me up for several snow cone dates. Snow cone dates. Yes. So this thus began the courtship from afar. <laughs> and I was very intimidated for all of my bravado in the club. This was like, he seemed like a really cool guy. <laughs> and I was really comfortable in my ordinary world of San Antonio and um, moving through a really nightmarish slow breakup with an ex and I was intimidated by the snow cone invitation and so I was always busy when it was snow cone time <laughs> why I was inviting you for snow cones I'm not sure but that's what it was it was Maybe. such a sweet invitation it, it was right and it's perfect for you it's perfect it wasn't for it wasn't the snow cones fault that it I got stood up it wasn't eventually I was persistent Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had we had some, you know, other lingering partners and things that we were both clearing out. But eventually we did that and stayed persistent. And uh, I got you to go to Vegas. Our first date was in Vegas. Our first date in Vegas. What an interesting spiral full circle <laughs> as we land back from Las Vegas. I know. In a totally new timeline know, of right? relationship. Yeah, our first date was Vegas. It was... Um, Gosh, was it my first time in Vegas, mm -hmm. I think. First time in Vegas, it was so special. Like a fish in water. And this man, at 25, 26, whatever age he was, he was a Casanova. I mean, he really, <laughs> really was. He he was wise and um, seasoned beyond his years and really showed me the most epic time. And so we took our dance moves, our, our capacity well, I got to really summit lucky. the pyramid of the dance floor to I Vegas. got really <laughs> lucky at that age because I met this guy named Dave Pappas. And Dave Pappas, who was friends with Sean Chester, and it was just super lucky because I was out there with a client and, you know, he saw me kind of entertaining and doing my thing. And then he was doing his thing, being a VIP host. And he like invited me over to have a drink and we got to be friends and he was much older. And, uh, and so I had like a hookup in Vegas at 26 with like, and, and Dave Pappas's <laughs> name was like magic. Mm -hmm. And Sean Chester, you just whispered it if you were in <laughs> Vegas at that point. And we, I've done a podcast with Sean Chester, but yeah, we got kind of hooked up in Vegas. So it was a, it was a, 
wow of a yeah, day. So we had like me, the best just, sushi, the best club, like whatever. I just was so impressed because everywhere we went, it was all dialed. And I'd never had that experience before. I was a bartender in San Antonio, still just finishing up college myself, really had never experienced anything. I'd never traveled up out of the country. And there was so much that was brand new to me. So I was very impressed. But that wasn't the only thing that got me to continue to go on dates with you. <laughs> it was a very solid first date. But no, but that was the beginning of our magical journey. As yeah. I know. Romantic partners and ultimately. And so for those people who are engaged. confused <laughs> at this point, obviously, and we've talked about this at different various points and in different podcasts and things, but Caitlin and I made one of the most magnificent transitions from having the arc of an entire relationship journey. You were with me when I actually started on it. And this whole relationship journey, I proposed to you and it was a beautiful moment and we had so many beautiful moments in our relationship. And then at a certain point, it no longer was a fit. And we separated and we separated gracefully, but painfully, you know, and Whitney entered the picture quickly, like kapow, as Whitney would, <laughs> as Whitney does, <laughs> burst onto the scene, boots blazing. Yeah. And, uh, and then it, it took a little while after that, you know, after that period um, for us to really find our friendship groove, even though we were always, we were always like good about staying in touch and sending love and et cetera. But let's go a little bit into that. But just so people know, we've made it all the way through that journey, many other iterations of that, and now have become the very bestest of friends. And when me and Vailana do a non-pandemic wedding, which will be the actual <laughs> wedding ceremony, you're going to be my best man. That's right. That's right. And you and Vi are like bestie, best bestie friends. friends. And you and Wit were best bestie, <laughs> bestie friends. <laughs> it's really been an extraordinary journey, an extraordinary journey that's taught me so much about the strength and power of love and unconditional love and allowing transformation and evolution to happen. And um, it's, it's a scenario that a lot of people haven't understood and i've you know fielded a lot of skepticism and and uh you know i know you have too in some ways and it's been so magnificent yeah arriving really in this place where we are absolute allies and on a mission together and just continuing to dance the dance of life together as best friends you're my best friend in the entire world <laughs> <laughs> for um if people want to know how good of friends i think we are i had a vision and a journey and i told you about it but in the vision i saw caitlin at a at a book reading and she was reading a biography that she wrote of the story of my life <laughs> And uh, she said, let me tell you about Aubrey Marcus, as I know. I know, yes, I know. <laughs> I know, and that's, <laughs> and that's the truth. And that's the, beauty of, that's the beauty of a relationship that transitions in the way that it has like us. Because 
when you're intimate with somebody like we were, there's things that just friends don't know about each other. You know? <laughs> it's like even your even your homies that you talk about anything to, they don't know really. You know, nobody but a lover will really know you. You know, to in some way, in, in some at some vector. And we got to go through that and you got to know me and see straight through all the way to the inside and know me as my closest ally, friend, confidant for all of the years subsequently. Yeah, it makes for the most rich and deep level of friendship. And because I, I can feel you because of the time, our, our psyches and our nervous systems know each other and just have that foundation forever where I can feel you in a crowd across the way and I just, I can sense where you're at. And I can check in and tune in with you and um, and be that confidant that you can share anything with that's alive in your heart. And I know you're that for me and you have been that for me in ways that I can't even express. And so it, when you shared that with me, that vision, it was like, of course I will. Of course I would be the one to tell your story. It reminded me of Hamilton and that song, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story. And it's, our stories are important. Yeah. And uh, the story that I've witnessed is one hell of a story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got, some, I got some more work to do to make sure it's a, a, a story worth telling at a sold out book, book tour. But, uh, but I think. Uh, <laughs> but, but do, do carry, carry on. on. <laughs> but, <laughs> do but carry, carry on. on. You know, there was a. Now you guys have got the beginning and you've got the end of the story. But there's some points in the middle that are, I think, important points. And there were some dark years for you in Las Vegas as well. You know, and we were in touch, but not close. It was, it needed space after we broke up and you moved out to Vegas. So let's let's talk about those times and and talk about it in a way that can reach people who've been to dark places themselves. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think one of the magnificent aspects of this masterpiece of life is that um, when you get served to your unexpected greatest challenges and obstacles, heartbreaks, losses, um, you end up moving through something that people, if you allow yourself to move through it and share it, can help guide people and help be a light for people. And I really, um, I really feel I've been into the underworld of the human experience in a very deep way. Um, and yeah, after we split, you know, I was a young woman and there was, like I shared, there was so much of life that I hadn't experienced until we were together. And the soul wants to grow. And so I grew with you. But for my soul, I was not enough to just grow with you and be the queen in your life. My soul had bigger plans and a bigger initiation for me to really learn how to be in life 
in myself. You remember that one poem that you wrote that was like foreshadowing that we wouldn't. Yeah. Oh, and this is something. This is something worth mentioning. You know, we had an an, a legendary relationship. We did. Really, uh, no. We did not struggle. We we didn't fight often. We had some definite. When we did, they got they, they were they fierce. got feisty. <laughs> I'm a I'm a fierce one. You're a fierce. <laughs> I'm a handful. <laughs> so when they happened, they they happened. But generally speaking, we they had got along. It. Amazing, amazing, and we were very, and so I didn't see it coming necessarily because I was so content. I was so happy, but I wasn't really living by my own compass. I, I would say in hindsight, I could feel I was living in in my love, which is very, very big and wants to love and wants to support my partner. I was very much in this like enthusiastic compass of yours, you mm-hmm. know, and, and on a higher perspective, I had a knowing that like a little glimmer in me that took me a while to own that was like, I want my own adventure and I want to follow my own compass and I know now that that's what my soul wanted for me and simultaneously I could f- I knew you well enough to know that you weren't ready to get married mm-hmm. then you loved me but you weren't ready you did the thing it was like we've been together for three and a half years now we're happy it makes sense right we're almost 30 that felt really old back then <laughs> like <laughs> let's do the thing because it makes sense and, and we also were... I like the romantic nature of it it was irresistible, oh, yeah. irresistible to me, you he's, know, he's like it was like poet. the whole, the whole thing, you know, <laughs> the buying of the ring and the kneeling and the poem and the, totally, and, uh, totally. you know, and, and it was, I think I've twice gotten carried in the, in the romanticism of the idea without being fully ready. And then by the time I was fully ready with Vailana, it was like, fuck the romanticism. Where's where's Elvis? <laughs> yeah. I'm so fucking ready. I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready immediately. I've been practicing for years for, to be ready. And now I act, I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah. This is it. Yeah. This is the one. Um, yeah, totally. And so I wrote a poem and I don't have it on me or I'd recite it, but it was, it was basically a feeling that I could feel in you, which was this this yearning and, and is probably able to feel it because it was in me on some level too, but I was just really disconnected yeah. from it, which was, you know, um, I likened you to a pirate. And it's funny because the last time I was on the mm-hmm. on the um, podcast, I read my own pirate sailor's poem. Yep. Couldn't we cheers yeah. as <laughs> yeah. sailors? Yeah. Savvy at sail of the stormy seas. And there was something in both of us that really still wanted more adventures, wanted more passion, wanted more love, wanted more lovers, wanted all of these things. And I could sense it in you. And um, I I almost, I, I remember on some level, if I'm really honest, like at the end, kind of pushing for that, saying like, I don't know if I'm the one. Like you had met Whitney at that point. We were all just friends. But I said, like, I could see mm-hmm. it was someone like Whitney. Yeah, and I, I look back now, and it's like, ah, of course, like I, my soul knew, my yeah. co- my higher consciousness knew. But for me, as the young woman that I was, who planned to be married and lived with you and all of these things, it was um, it was devastating yeah. to end our partnership. And I, my reaction at that point, because I hadn't cultivated and developed the, um. The things, the the experiences and practices and ways that I enjoy my life that that seeing my soul alive on my own 
um, a lot of what I knew back then was partying and the fun, the thrill of dancing and the thrill of intoxication and the festival and all of these things that I knew in their shadow aspect because there was this, I was very much in this young, um, immature, uh, you know, kind of hunger, this mm -hmm. hunger for life that was like, that loved those things. And my coping mechanism for the, the pain of separation was to go deeper into those things. So not knowing what to do next as the future kind of got wiped clean into a clean slate, I decided to move to Las Vegas and I proceeded to try to figure out who I was in the most, in ways that did not serve me anymore. And it was, you know, a lot of like, all right, I'm going to go back to the club and I'm going to dance. And that wasn't the conscious choice, but looking back on my behavior, it was like, well, this is what I've been doing. Um, and I knew my light on some level, but I was, I was masquerading pain with these behaviors. And mm -hmm. so I went kind of deep into um, hyper-socialism, running around and trying to meet people and create a new life for myself as a way of coping with the life that... I felt like I'd lost. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work out very well after some time. <laughs> no birthday guy, it doesn't. <laughs> Let's give one lesson from Caitlin, who was always hypersocial. One, Caitlin was the person and still is the person. If you have a party, you want Caitlin at your party because Caitlin at your party ramps it up at least seven degrees of fucking fire <laughs> that gets ramped up minimum so if your party's like an 85 it's like a fucking 90 92 you know like just one person alone and sometimes Solid if it's a seven. small party you know it could be more it could be like 21 degrees true better true. you know it's, it's it's there's variance depending on the size but because of that everybody wanted you at their birthday and planning their birthday mm -hmm. and we probably had at one point, we had probably 70 friends or something like that. <laughs> I was like, and there was a birthday. Every weekend. Every weekend. It was 52 fucking, 52 weeks a year. You got 70 friends that all want you to plan. Their, I was like, Caitlin. Sometimes there's two. With <laughs> yeah, that, exactly. when we're working with those statistics, exactly. I'm going to have two birthdays a week like, sometimes. This is unsustainable. It's unsustainable. <laughs> but at that point. You were birthday guy. And I was super birthday guy. And so I went out into the world to find more birthdays <laughs> to bless with my enthusiastic presence. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, and I, I really did, I did have quite an adventure. Um, you know, I, I traveled a lot. I met new friends. I got into the Vegas scene. I started, you know, um, just, I was, but I was really running from, I was running from, what I'd left behind and trying not to feel what I was really feeling. And there came a certain point where I remember, you know, I was living in this really dreary Las Vegas condo. It was so, so beautiful, but so dark feeling. Mm. And all of these things kept happening around me. Like I saw a girl kill herself and um, I was having a lot more pain and heartbreak and betrayal I was treated really I began you know being out there getting treated really badly by men um I got more and more alone and isolated feeling and um I remember a morning you know feeling like I'm killing myself I'm killing myself I um I can't I'm dying inside 
and um, in the in the rare moments, you know, I, I had lovers that treated me badly that I just put up with it. I was I was really really grasping and and really suffering, and um, it's a whole story. <laughs> but uh, one thing worth double clicking on is I think you know people think that well, some women are just attracted to abusive men and if they you know, had a reference for this or that, then that wouldn't happen, you know? Or, like there's a, some idea that like there's a type of woman mm-hmm. that's attracted to, a, to those type of men and not attracted to other type of men. But all three of my like deepest relationships, well, four if you count Angie, like, all of them, we were in deeply loving relationships. And also they had history with deeply abusive men. You know, it's like all of these ideas that people might have about it can and does happen to every great woman that I've ever known, truly, you know? And I think, I think a part of that is, you know, there are certainly some cases of very characteristic relationships that repeat and certain, you know, behaviors of abuse that you can track in a pattern. But generally, in my experience, this is not about a type of woman. It, um, it's, it's more about a type of self-perception. Mm-hmm that seeks to allow itself to be proven through relationship. And Mm so we're dealing more with wounds that when they're active and don't believe that they have worth. Um, And this can show up in anybody. This can show up in anybody, male or female. And those, those wounds will allow behavior to come up, even from people who don't necessarily behave that way all the time. But there's this sort of unconscious permission slip that's given that's like, I feel this way about myself and I'm going to seek to confirm that in how I allow you to treat me. And we get locked in these um, really unfortunate dynamics of wounds matching wounds. And this is- And the groove of the wound can just get deeper and deeper. Yes, And deeper because- and that's and that's something that people don't realize. It's not even that the wounds have to come from prior to the relationship, but the relationship can create a wound. And if you have a manipulative or manipulative, seductive type of person who can actually deepen the wounds and then deepen the codependency and then deep, like there's some pretty nasty spirals that can happen because even after what five six years, how long were five, yeah, five six that, years almost together? Six years, yeah of a just a loving and sweet and supportive relationship where I just put you as my queen on the highest uh-huh. thing with the shiniest light and the and the most love, you know? And of, and of course, just to let people know, like our separation was hard for me as well because the love was very deep and real. And actually it came to me in an aboga journey that we shared Yeah, where aboga like told me very clearly, like this isn't the right, dynamic for you and Caitlin like and I argued with the boga for like eight hours about it and it was a 24-hour journey and we were just I was just wrestling with the boga and the boga was finally like just trust me and he was honest right away 
Yeah, that, I told you that. I told you after that was done. Right in the right in the ocean the next morning, and I had been through my own iboga. It was sort of like it unlocked Pandora's box. Like we went to go do iboga, and this was my first big psychedelic journey ever. I had these issues with binge addictions, so I would consume, and then after a while, I'd get really excited, and I would get in the flow of a party or the environment that was giving me that. Um, encouraging feedback, and then I wouldn't stop, and I wouldn't like stop. Like a shiny, <laughs> glittery, happy, beautiful <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that's exactly right. Yep. Uh, I will put a pin in that because, um, yeah, that, that yeah, I was very much that. <laughs> There was a, we we used to joke about it and be like, there's a little demon inside me. <laughs> and in my aboga journey, it, that was my intention was to kind of, quote unquote, slay the demon that felt like it took over my free will at a certain point. But what really happened is it opened an initiatory period that would last years for me to liberate myself from these kind of behaviors. And... That's the way soul works. It doesn't happen in one fell swoop um, as much as we want it to sometimes. You know, there's all, all these ideas that I can go do ayahuasca or boga and it's just going to be one overnight thing. Yep. No, that the lightning bolt that struck was your codependency on this to feel good about yourself is going to go now. And you're going to go through your dark night of the soul and it's going to take a long time. But you will rise you will rise. And it reminds me of that, you know, that book that I read, um, uh, The Path of the Warrior. It oh, says, yeah? you know, you will be obliterated. The warrior suffers is the passage. Mm -hmm. But when you land, there will be one thin red line of dignity that you will maintain. And when you hit the bottom, you will rise. Yeah. And um, I held on to that passage as I moved through that time period in my life because I had to go deep into the darkness to want to save myself naturally and patiently and with devotion and commitment. And it was that moment where I realized, you know, I'm dying inside that I started to seek something greater. And my first, <laughs> my first, there were two things I did, you know, um, one was you had been on your path, which you'd already gone and sat with ayahuasca and launched on it and we stayed these remote friends but you invited me to um you know if i ever felt called to go out go down to peru and sit with don howard and have my first mm. journey with ayahuasca and it took me getting to that place where i was really like yeah anything anything i'm scared it's it's amazon jungle i'm gonna go by myself but i want to do it i want i just would rather you know, I'd rather be terrified and seek to save myself than to continue to go through this here in Las Vegas. And um, the other thing was I had, it's funny, I feel emotional talking about all this stuff because it just opens this really tender place in me. But um, I'd always wanted to be a writer. Mm. And at that time, the only way out of despair was to write the truth about how I felt. And to just start documenting it, very much like Hunter S. Thompson, like the journalist to the wild savagery of life is, I'm going to not get gobbled up by it, but I'm going to sit here like a, like a fierce investigator of the human experience and the human condition, and I'm going to make art from it. 
And so I found a writer's group in Las Vegas and I went in there by myself and just kind of knocked on the back door and I sat with this motley crew of people from all different walks of life and I started writing poetry. It's I get this image of like a this white, you know, this white deer and the glorious glorious you know white hind and mm -hmm. the wolves are just eating and and biting its legs and tearing its flesh but the white hind is just recording all of the gnashing <laughs> teeth and the blood and the whole thing mm -hmm. you know is in this interesting way i think many poets and many artists are like that they're like willing to put themselves in a place where they're being just tumultuously devoured by life so that they can share the you know share that truth of that experience for everybody else going through it and for yourself and uh, it's it's yeah. some kind of interesting calling that a poet Absolutely. the poet's heart has to feel to just feel, to feel all, all of the feelings you know on both sides of the spectrum Absolutely and I remember um I remember being struck by one of Lena Dunham's stories in her book, um, Not That Kind of Girl, and she says, she talks about an instance where she has this encounter with a man who's like hitting on her, and she said, I did it for the story. And I got to, I never did things specifically for a story, but once I realized the story that was there, that was my story, that only could be told from the gut-wrenching perspective of what I was feeling and experiencing and the humiliation and the pain and the doubt and all of the fear that arose and the way that I've kept finding compassion and kept finding that thin red thread of dignity in me, it helped me hold it differently and with, and with appreciation. Mm -hmm. Like I am here and I'm willing to tell the story and I'm willing to see it through the lens of compassion that comes from being strong enough to stand in it. And when I do that, I get to make art and I get to reach out to people who have been here too and say, I was there. I felt this way. How did you feel? Did you feel the same? What was it like for you? Mm. We had to create this bridge. And I saw so many other women. I say women, even though I know it's everyone, in their own different ways. And this isn't just about, you know, women being victims, which is definitely a part of it. But there are men that are victims too. There are, the wolves come in all shapes, sizes yeah. and colors. And um, and there's innocence inside of all of us. And so I remember making that shift where I was more conscious and more committed to being a writer and just being, in the experience with curiosity so I could make art. And um, I would see and feel the, the white hind behind the eyes of the fiercest looking wolf woman mm -hmm. that was across the table from me who had her armor up. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to tell my story because I want people to find the the compassion point where if you meet somebody, a woman, a man, anyone in a certain environment where you've decided that it's all wolves or you've decided that it's um, all that kind of woman who attracts that kind of man and all of these labels that we put on people, if you get to hear one woman's story about where she came from and who she really is and what she really went through behind the veil mm. of the makeup and the glitter and the smiles, 
um, you maybe you can treat people differently and yeah. love them differently. And that's really what was the impetus for me really taking on what pulled me out of that space was I'm going to write my story. And I began that journey, um, yeah, 2015. I started working on my first book, mm-hmm. not yet published, but um, that was what really, really brought me up out of quote unquote hell, the hell that I had created. The shiny room in hell. Shiny room in hell, the name of the book. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, actually the title for that first manuscript came from a conversation we had because you were always my, you've always been, for anyone listening, this, this the most magnificent thing about <laughs> our relationship is not that it's transformed to me. It is so cool that it has, but it's also, of course, it has because you are like my soul's guardian angel and you've never left me and you've never given up on me. And though we had periods of distance and um, separation and silence, you never lost faith. And I remember one day on the phone you said, I'm not giving up on you. I'm going to haunt you till the day you die. (laughs) (laughs) And at this point, I told him that uh, I wanted to be a writer. And I said, I'm going to write. I I was working at this hotel at that point. I had fought my way up from like bottle service waitress to like a dignified position and, you know, in a suit with an earpiece. And I felt better in that because I was clothed and I wasn't being (laughs) objectified by sweaty, drunk people at the pool all day. And he said to me, Kate, it's just another shiny room in hell. You got to get out. And I knew I had to get out because I knew that even just my lifestyle was was killing me. And um, and I told my mom, I want to write a book about my my life here and what I've learned. And I told my mom what he said, that it's just another shiny room in hell. And she said, Caitlin, that's the title of your book. Mm-hmm. And I knew, I knew then it was. And um and I was brave and I left and uh, went and stayed in my sister's guest room in her backyard for six months. And I just learned everything I could about the writing process and um, got all the story down. And um, and I loved it. I fell in love with be- becoming a writer at that time. Mm. And uh, and then I got hired by the World Poker Tour to be a poker presenter. <laughs> and I p- p- pressed pause and uh, the the journey continued, but from then on, it was all rising, and it was all seeking to nourish my soul gradually, 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 until I arrived here with my guardian angel <laughs> um, in a completely new life expression as a mature woman. <laughs> it's interesting how it's flipped in some ways in that, you know, I think of you now as now my fiercest guardian, <laughs> you know, and there's been... You know, our lives have transformed an impossible amount, both from the many psychedelic journeys and adventures we've had and just life and love and everything, but so much has transformed, including, you know, your gifts as a woman, as a medicine woman, and and, uh, so many things that have come online. And it's, I think, you know, some of the moments of like, my greatest joy 
you know, I can remember our moments where I see that thing click in where, you know, Gaffney would call it your unique self moment where you're living your sacred name story, the thing that really only you can do and that you're here to do. You're taking your unique risk, the risk that only you can take that will yield the story that only you can write, right? <laughs> like, and it's, it's very important that we all embrace our unique risk. I think I had a understanding of this when I was writing Go For Your Win, which is the first course that I wrote which is basically like take your own unique risk fucking go for it that's the only way you will ever feel alive otherwise some part of you is a little bit dead if you don't take your unique risk and you're in a shiny room in hell however how however shiny it is you're a little bit dead inside because you're not living and taking that risk that only you yeah. can take and i remember you know for you it was in it was in Sedona and Fit for Service was young. And that's the, you know, obviously the platform that we created together. And I was always the kind of ecstatic dance teacher, you know, <laughs> having learned from Porangi and Ashley, you know, 10 years prior and, you know, had practiced and I was always good at making playlists and, you know, speaking poetic words and firing people up and, you know, getting emotional and all the things that are required. And, uh, and I encourage you to, you know, like, Katie, why don't you try it? And we was just me and you and we're uh -huh. in the living room. The <laughs> it was just me and you in the living room in Sedona and you created a sacred rage, yeah. ecstatic dance. For women, too, mind you. It's me and Aubrey yeah. alone in the living room yeah. and the ranch. A and, sacred rage dance for women. And he's such a great friend. He's like, put me through it. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Yeah. I mean, I had had it in my mind that it's for women. It'd be great for anybody. And um, I was so nervous. Yeah, for sure. I had, to, I had to like realize, like, <laughs> come on, you, we can do it. You got this. And I remember you started and you were nervous and you were, it was kind of like you were saying things, but your, your heart wasn't in it, but I was dancing anyways. And then like song two or three or something, something just clicked in and a whole other version of you that was like, holy shit. I mean, there's a lot of Caitlin, holy shit moments, <laughs> but not in this kind of directed arrow way where the union of the masculine and the feminine came together, the masculine that was projecting something to actually impregnate mm. people with a different idea and the feminine that was there receiving the exact right words and the exact thing. Wow. It was like that locked in. And I think that was a kind of a piece that was always kind of if I if I were to assess like that masculine ability to actually go in a line in that that line consciousness of like I'm going to impregnate this moment, this idea, this brand, this thing, this experience with my essence, you know, yes. like that was the thing that you were missing because you always had the chalice, the feminine aspects, but yeah, but and at that moment it both came together and I just started crying because it was like holy shit. Like, it was it was a beautiful it. moment. You said that to me. You did it. You did it. And mm -hmm. it was um it felt so good to just to just have that invitation and allow it to come through and that really was the piece for me. I think the past few years as I've stepped into my path as um a facilitator and a guide and fit for service, it's forced me 
to bring in that masculine aspect that wasn't there in the past because I was, you know, often flowing with that receptive feminine who's cueing off of the feedback of the world around me, like, am I doing a good job, waiting for the direction of social feedback. Mm. That was my story before. And I got put in enough situations where it's like, you have to serve your medicine and you have this opportunity to help people. And flexing that muscle and just exercising the permission to let the masculine come in and direct that energy has, um, created such an extraordinary energy in my body where that I never really knew where it's um you know it's it's the union of self and I think there's there's such a synchronistic and magical um correspondence with the the themes we've been working on in fit for service which a couple of years ago was the masculine the feminine and the union and there was just um something that really got to step in over the past couple of years that's allowed me to exercise that enough to where I know myself. I know that I know myself enough to stand in confidence that the medicine I am serving is of value and it's helpful. And I don't need those crutches anymore of anyone giving me social feedback or having a substance or anything to feel more confident in who I am and what I have to say. So yeah, ecstatic dance is now the evolution of what I used to do in yeah, the club when uh, I would stand exactly. on the quote unquote pyramid it's like you I, were inspiring ecstatic <laughs> dance just by dancing <laughs> yeah. but now you're really like a main ad but now you're really doing it like a like a like, like a, a ceremonial maestra yes, yeah. exactly. from main ad to my maestra <laughs> that could be my memoir now that we're talking about it yeah, yeah. from main ad to maestra yeah so it's been um it's been an incredible journey. And I think that's one of the most exciting pieces of aging and maturing and, and seeing the way that the themes in your life from when you're younger, they're promising you something. Like when you talk about yeah. the unique risk and the unique story, the the blueprint is there. It's right there and it always ha it always has been. But you have to recognize, you know, what were these pieces that are my unique gift that I'm meant to give in my unique way through my unique risk. That's the elixir that people need to receive from you. And getting out of your own way, for me, like getting out of my own way was a part of that journey of saying, I know that this helps people and I know that they need it right now. And who am I to play small and get in my own way when I was given this blueprint of how I can be of service to the world right now. And it involves dancing and costumes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Awesome, let's do that. You know, and at, we just got back from Arcadia, which is the festival that we threw, which is a real full circle moment for us because both of us went to our first rave together, you know, like, the yeah. first, <laughs> all the first festivals, you know, uh, crazy experiences we got to, hang with Zed and Sonny who's Skrillex and we got to like do the whole thing and like we were fucking just festival kids for a little we while were. you know and then we and then of course you were there <laughs> you you went to Burning Man even a year before I did and then convinced me to go and uh, me and Whitney to go and and now we just threw a fucking epic festival but seeing you 
in that environment, I remember at the end of the festival, I was exhausted and depleted and and also deeply satisfied and moved by what we created. And I remember I uh, I called you into the room and I you know I just started crying. And part of the reason that I was crying was to one just release all of that energy that had built up, but two because I'd I'd watched you navigate it and you did it so impeccably that I knew that yes, my own unique Aubrey contribution is a unique Aubrey contribution. However, if there was no unique Aubrey to contribute to that, you could have just ran it. Like if I would have gotten some, you know, fucking bad strain of whatever, monkey pox or something, you could have fucking, you could have just taken it and and delivered in such a, your own unique way, but such a equivalent way to what I was able to do. And, and that was like, it was so cool to see you in wow. the way that you gave your speech and the way that you addressed the crowd and the way that you navigated it. It was really like a cool moment to see like, all right, fuck yeah. It's so meaningful to me to feel that. And I felt it too, mm-hmm. you know, um, that was, it was an arrival moment, a glorious arrival moment after a lifetime of, you know, trying to figure it out right? Yeah. Like for so many years um, to realize that part of my destiny is this. <laughs> it's, it's very much um, the the beautiful union of, you know, um, transformational experiences and human connection and full expression and dance and reverence and all of these things that come into the festival and to be able to um, to co-create that with you and realize like this is part of what our souls do really well together. Mm-hmm. And I am not afraid of anything anymore. To be able to get in to go back to Las Vegas, like this festival was so difficult for us in so many ways. And it just had a almost like a will of its own and wanted to be the way it wanted to be and kept showing us what it wanted to be. And it ended up wanting to be in Las Vegas, of mm-hmm. all places, where our story began, where my story was written. And, um, you know, there was a, just this gorgeous, like, giggly wow factor to it where I was going like, huh, I get to go back to this place where I doubted myself and bring love Mm. and bring healing in such a big sonic boom kind of way. I remember feeling that on the flight as we were descending and just saying like, I'm coming back for you, Las Vegas. <laughs> I'm bringing this. Yeah. And um, I remember you, you know, I used to be really hard on myself after I wrote that first manuscript of A Shiny Room in Hell. It was like, oh, I never finished it. And you would always say to me, maybe it's, maybe the story isn't written yet. You gotta write the ending. Got to write the ending of your actions. Fucking a! There we go. (laughs) There we go. There we go. I had that. Well, now you got to write the book. (laughs) You wrote the ending. Now there's that whole middle section that spans, (laughs) um, you know, eight years or something. But yeah, it was it was profound. And with that, some kind of magic just synthesized in me. It was like, yeah, I've arrived. Yeah, I was. I've arrived. It's interesting because you can track these things, you know, I, um, with Whitney, I could, I could tell that it was singing. I could tell that it was singing and she, and like, but she was so like 
absolutely terrified to sing. And all I would ask every year for Christmas was for her mm -hmm. to sing me a song. And I think I got it like one and a half times <laughs> out of all of the eight years because she was just terrified even to sing to me, yeah. you know? And ultimately, obviously, with Whitney and I splitting, she just went straight into it. <laughs> and I remember the first song that I heard from her, the first country song that I heard from her, it was that same thing. Like, I hit her back and I was like, you did it. Like, you fucking did it. Like, there's a, there's a thing that you can tell where somebody is doing the exact thing that they're here to do. Yeah. And, and I'm sure the completion of that is going to be when she's on stage somewhere yeah. doing it. And same with Vilana. Vilana came and she did her holographic sound healing and she gave a sound healing. You know, and I wasn't even with her at that point. But the sound healing was magnificent, but I couldn't even pay attention. I was just looking at her and just just smiling and crying. I mean, we were very close friends at that point because... I could tell like, holy shit, you did it. Like you did it. You unlocked your unique, your unique self code. You know, you were absolutely on your sacred name story. Yes. You know, like the one that only you can write. And I think there's many ways that you can actually do that. It's just, it combines all of your unique skills and talents. It's not like you have a destiny. It's like you have mm -hmm. all of these unique combination of skills and talents and attributes and qualities, and you can put them into something where all of them get to shine and come alive and co-mingle and create something greater than the parts. And I saw that with Vi, and I've watched that journey, and, and Ar Arcadia as well, when she sang that her song, yeah. you know, Phoenix, which is going to be releasing soon, I think, actually, in, in August. Um that was that moment as well. You know, yes. it was like this moment of, okay, I saw it start and then I saw it like, okay, now you're fucking really doing it. And there's yep. a nice little interesting gap. But uh, yeah, it's it's cool that both of you got to have that moment at Arcadia. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's exciting to realize these things and to get to really celebrate how your unique gifts commingle into this original gift that doesn't look anything like anyone else's exactly. And I feel like that's just unlocked for me this year, but it took all of the purification of doubt, self-doubt, those wounded stories of rejection, that trying to do it like other people. That was another big piece too mm -hmm. for me is, um, you know, for me, I think writing for a long time, it was a way to uh, to hide behind my writing. Like I can say it, I can say something that's really difficult to say, or I can confess something that I've done or that I feel without having to have the vulnerable spotlight of saying it with my mouth on stage or something like that. And um, there's, a there's a magnificent catharsis in that. Writing is an incredible outlet of art to do, you know, to do something like that. But with every opportunity that I started to use the other gifts, like getting on stage to do ecstatic dance and allowing the poetry to flow through moment to moment in whatever my guidance was or doing a guided meditation or, you know, any of these other things that I've been um, facilitating, it's clearing away and purifying all of those stories that keep the voice inhibited and say, well, I need to hide behind my, my writing. Mm. I need to, I want to be quiet. I want to go into a cave and then put that out there. And so I'm getting a lot more excited about, okay, what does this look like when I take 
the part of me who dances in a costume and the part of me who, you know, hides behind some of the fiercest or like, you know, most most savage poetry that I have. And then I pair these into, you know, everything that I'm here to express and everything that I can give. And um, I had a I had an experience recently watching um, our friend Emma Lume get up on stage and Bass concert hall here in um, here in Austin and speak poetry and I I was such a shy little girl I never thought I'd want to get up or I'd be able to get up and like tell my story and speak my art and I didn't ever see anything like that for poets either where you could get up and have that kind of uh, flow experience where you are serving your medicine to a huge auditorium full of people and mm. i i was like oh this is like how athletes feel when they go to like when they go to like a sports you know game or something i just never knew that 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 kind of pinnacle existed and so i'm getting um i'm getting a lot more excited for weaving together these gifts in a way that feels um like the full ex- expression of who i am and so i can help people do that yeah. Um, to live that passionate life that's that's loving everything that you feel and everything that you're here to serve. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> One of the things that has happened along the way is going to sound weird for people. And this goes back to where, you know, to me, you've become in some ways my guardian you know, you have dreams about it all the time. Mm-hmm. First of all, one of Caitlin's most consistent dreams is someone's trying to kill me and Caitlin stabs them in the fucking neck. <laughs> yeah. Like that's that's like over and over. And and I think Just let it be known, that's my go-to, <laughs> stab in the neck. So <laughs> uh, the the thing that's that came online for you is it's an energy that comes through you. And there's a lot of labels that you could use about energy. Oh, is it channeling or is it light language or whatever? It doesn't matter. It's an energy and it's a frequency that comes through you. And it's a frequency of the fiercest compassion, the fiercest compassion, a compassion of, I will feel everything that you're feeling and I will amplify it. So you know that not only am I with you, but that even if you go deeper and darker and more painful, I'll feel that too. And I love you so much that I'll feel everything you're feeling and even more and i'll keep feeling so that you'll never be alone and and like i in so many times it's actually one of the most powerful pieces of medicine that comes through it can come through with hape or it can come through with a ceremony or sometimes just when we're if it needs to come through and i'm going through something there's this thing that you can click into that's really spectacular yeah, so I'll share a little bit about that. Something extraordinary has happened for me in the past two years, really. Um, there was a big turning point that I won't pretend to understand or diminish by trying to um, pretend that I understand because I'm still learning about it and I think I will be for the rest of my life. But it feels as though I've done, I've said yes to enough initiatory challenges um, and sat with some medicine for over many years, done a lot of inner work. And I had, you know, um, I had something unlock in me in 2019, very faintly, where I started feeling this language come through. 
and I would just like my own language, just like my own art, I would second guess it and doubt it and say like, oh, that that doesn't mean anything. That's so weird. You know, um, all the old stories were still very active back then and I would kind of suppress it and, and quiet it. And um, with time, my father passed in 2020. I went through a big, big, big um, reckoning with myself and just what kind of life I want to live. Um, what kind of relationships I want to keep, how I want to spend my time here, and how I want to do my very best not to live a tragic life, which for me would mean I enjoy myself and I give it everything that I've got. And with that reorientation to life, I started getting a lot more curious about who I really was, not the persona who sought the adoration of her environment and not the um not the maiden the perpetual maiden that i had been for so long who who needed to make people happy in order to feel good about herself but who was i really and what am i here to do and that started a beautiful new opening for me and as that opening unfolded a lot of things happened in my life relationships changed i be, i built a really um passionate new lifestyle in really li living in rapturous ritual with the guidance that comes to me. So I pay a lot of attention to synchronicity. I pay a lot of attention to the symbols and the, the messages that I get from the divine. And I bring them into my waking life in a way where it's sort of like like my house is covered in altars. I, tr I treat my life like an altar to my soul where I'm just bringing mm -hmm. in the guidance that I receive and, um, and making it fun and playful and bright. And it's, it's really, really fun. Um, but as I started getting more interested in who I was on a soul level and started feeding the altar of my life with the mana of my passion and my excitement and my interest and my curiosity, um, that channel began to get a lot more comfortable and open up more and the language would come through more. And there's a mysterious and beautiful relationship with that energy that seems to be of me, but beyond me. Mm -hmm. And um, and also my, my own like, purification of my ego and settling into this confidence in who I am, it holds, it holds hands with it. So as I get more comfortable allowing what comes to me intuitively to come through, everything else that I know gets more comfortable coming through. So my work as, you know, an ecstatic dance guide or my work as a poet or my work as a space holder. Um, and with that, there's a there's one frequency that is absolutely of me in that energy that comes through. And it's always been there. And that's the compassion. That is this fierce love. Like, And if you think about compassion and empathy are very similar. So if I'm able to cue off of my environment and feel what people want from me, it's because I'm connected yeah. to their feelings. Yeah. So the shadow aspect of that is to modify my behavior to meet the sensing that I'm getting and the superpower of that is to be able to respond to them and acknowledge them and feel them and connect with them and be in their experience with them, but not lose myself. And that feels like this new, this new relationship, this new horizon that I'm on, where it's mm -hmm. like I can have both.
Mm-hmm. I can be empathetic and compassionate and still really know who I am and just respond to the world around me and give back. Yeah. What would you say for, so let's go into some pragmatic advice for, you know, you're a, you're a woman with, we've told a lot of your story now, <laughs> you know, and there's, you know, I give a lot of advice advice the gender is is what it is you know but specifically speaking to you know the young women and I'm, of course it will apply to you know mm-hmm. young men as well who are drawn to you know living a life like you're you've lived and and being able to access what you're able to access in your poetry and your you know what you're able to offer the world and your art and your I mean, everything's coming online, songs, and it's it's crazy what's actually <laughs> happening for you right now. It's, it's magnificent. Um, what is some advice that you would give somebody? And we we meet a lot of these young women along the along the journey. What is some advice, and what are some caveats? And like, let's you know, give some give some wisdom yeah. that someone could to take from this. Cool question. Yeah. Um, first and foremost, I. <clears throat> I had a, I was working with a coach earlier in the year. I went through a big initiation, which is kind of a played out buzzword, but it's true. It felt like very much an initiation um, of rebirth at the beginning of the year. And I worked with a coach, um, invested in that for a little while. And he, uh, shout out to Stefano Stefandos, my coach, he said, you know, um, what would it feel like to be enthralled with yourself? And I, I love that. And I realized that was a piece of what was happening for me was um, I started to get way more interested in what was happening in me and in my relationship to the world than the relationships that I had mm. or the stories like enthralled as in passionately curious like whoa mm. ooh me like what's happening here mm. what's so special about this um it sounds a bit selfish but it's important i think for a lot of women to be get become enthralled with yourself as a starting point to get to know who you are because it is the best opportunity that any of us have to understand any human being <laughs> Like, yeah. what are you going to do? You're going to learn about humans from another person? Fuck off. Right here. Yeah. Like, yeah. if you got studying yourself, this is what every mystic tradition will point to is like, no, like, look inside, look inside. Yeah. Because this is what we have absolute access to. Everything else, we're looking through screens upon screens upon screens and filters. Even if the person is as wide open as possible, we're still not seeing only thing we can see exactly we can even hope to see clearly exactly (laughs) we can't can't even say we can see it clearly and that becomes the most fascinating and exciting and informative study you can do is getting really really curious like passionately curious about yourself and with that honoring what you discover so for me i had um i use altar as a place to honor myself in what I find and honor God and honor the divine. Um, But one of the things I did was, you know, I went for a stroll in the toy section and just picked out the toys that my, my inner child loved. And I made an altar to my inner child. It has a Candyland 
uh, board game floor. It has, you know, little Barbie Corvette just because it had rainbow wheels. It has like a glow sign that says love. Uh, give you, so giving myself permission to not be ashamed of anything that I find and to celebrate it. And somewhere, it doesn't have to become my life, it doesn't have to rule my life, but to acknowledge it and honor it and allow it to come through in some way has been just fun. It's been a fun way. And with these these pieces of curiosity and celebration, which I think are two of the codes that are really accessible for me, that really support me is, um, is I start to integrate and love myself more because I'm just giving attention. Our sacred attention is like, the most valuable currency that we have. And so if I'm giving that to curiosity and celebration of me, we actually get to start to love ourselves in a way that's more fun than that, like, you've got to love yourself. you just got to love yourself. It's like, mm -hmm. how can we do this in a way that's really fun? So there's that. Um, the other part that, uh, in terms of advice that I would give is, um, it, it all really boils down to permission. But having a radical commitment to have an outlet to say what you need to say, no matter if it's conscious or, um, you know, quote unquote conscious, quote unquote um, fair. Like there's so much that needs to be alch alchemized in the feminine that is oppressive. It's, we have been oppressed historically in such a way that we are carrying the residue of so many generations of you're not allowed to say that, you're not allowed to do that, you're not allowed to express like that. We have to find every opportunity. We owe it to ourselves and we owe it to other women to find every opportunity to create outlets of radical permission to just say the thing that needs to be said or do the thing that wants to be done. And um, we can do that, you know, for me, poetry is an incredible outlet for this. And it's one of the reasons my poems are so often so dark and gritty. And um, it's it's my place for me to take an energy or a feeling or an emotion or an experience that feels really true for part of me and give it and free myself of it, really. It's like, I'm going to hold this somewhere in the shadow of who I am until I give it a voice. And as soon as you say it, you're free. You get to mm -hmm. feel what comes next after it's said. And, and I think for women collectively, you know, um, having scary conversations helps. It's cool. It's really, really empowering. And it can be really healing for relationships that we want to evolve. But we don't always have the opportunity to say everything or to evolve those relationships that we would like to evolve. And we can get so stuck in wanting the relationship to evolve when really what we need is just to say the thing that allows ourselves to evolve. And when I get to really say an uncomfortable truth in a poem or you know, just sit in my living room and like, strum my guitar like a total amateur and just like belt out whatever's on my heart um often i find that something else comes through after that get that clears and moves that's even more true yeah but i won't get there unless i let it out and so all of that to say you know um it all really boils down to radical permission to just say the unsaid thing yeah 
and do Ex- the thing that you Expression as the antidote to repression that potentially was caused by historic and systemic oppression. Oppression. Yeah. Yeah. And to have fun while you do it. And have fun. <laughs> there's, there's, you said you have one poem that you have memorized. Oh man! <laughs> and that was and that was one of these moments, right? It was this it was this feeling, and I don't even think mm-hmm. you know the poem needs a story. It's a feeling yeah. that you have, and the poem is the poem is about a feeling, and I think you'll get the gist of what the feeling is. But if yeah. you're up for it, why don't you lay it on us? Yeah, yeah. So totally, I have one poem currently memorized. I have a couple memorized, but um. This one is the freshest. I've never said it. I was in a moment of feeling really triggered and I didn't have, I didn't know what else to do with how I was feeling other than to write a poem. And I did. And I memorized it because it was cathartic for me to say it. (laughs) (laughs) And I was going to take it to an open mic night and I never got to. So yeah. um, Mic's open. Mic's open. Oh, funny. <laughs> so funny how I can be like, I'm not scared of anything. I've totally integrated my voice. <laughs> and then you invite me to do this. And I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, man, when I have to read a poem, <laughs> it's like the, it's the most nervous I ever get. It's wild. Right before, right before I start. And then obviously once I start. It's a nice, respectful yeah. trepidation, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so... I was once just like you. Dragon was my first name, baby. That was me. The real deal fantasy. Flying everywhere and shooting fire. Blazing wings of desire. Until I burned too many bridges. And got tired. Decided to land under the sun on the sand. And become the whole damned planet. Took a mountain range for scales. Earned ocean eyes and city teeth. I made a house for you to heal in. A place for you to eat. And rolled my esophagus red carpet out for your parade. Let myself fade back into the scenery that I grow. And have a front row seat to your new show. (laughs) I applaud and nod, but wave a friendly reminder to remember that your sweet giggles are echoes of the belly-laughing maiden dancing forever in the heart of the great she-dragon called us. We are one body through trust, lineage, and ligament, so when I ask for your respect, what I meant is you can be her seductive breath if that's your chosen throne, and I will stand for what I am and her well-formed backbone and the sacrum cradle of the womb cave that gave you birth. You can play stardust, and I'll be the earth. We are the same thing, and I am proud to call us kin. It's not a sin to emulate me, recreate me. I'm flattered when you do, but forget me not because I was here for eons before you. I lived through dark ages that became morning bird songs, and I'm the tree soul in the pages that you write your lines on. Pain, pleasure, envy, elegance, It's all good, dry, tender. Please, have some of mine. Light up the world. 
I will sit back and plant my roses, sing to my cosmic eggs and pour some wine to thank you for your service because now I can recline and watch the mudras of my red thread marionette fingers spin you on and on. Twirling out is more creation. That's poetry's proliferation. And like the Cheshire cat, I smile. Child, we are tending the same great fire. Our work is one love, born through hearts torn in two. I'm grateful for your part. And you, you are welcome for the flame I helped you start. <laughs> Get him! Get him! <laughs> wow. Fierce, right? Fierce. <laughs> Fierce. Fierce. Uh, it's wild. Um, it's wild. So I wrote that in an in a moment of feeling betrayed, a little bit taken advantage of. Um, and I was jealous. The truth is I was jealous. Mm-hmm. And I saw, you know, someone I was jealous of write a good poem <laughs> about what I perceived to be a transgression to me. And um, you can't really come out and say that. It's right. awkward, right? right? You, but you can give it a voice. And so what I did was I was like, I... I don't know what to do with this feeling. I know it feels like a bit petty. I know it. I don't like the way it's like sitting in my body. And I was all restless and worked up. And so I wrote that. And then when I wrote it, it was like, oh, well, I like that. I like what I just wrote. And it felt good. And then I could feel like this click of like gratitude, like this exchange of, okay, I made some art with what I was feeling. And what was really interesting, too, is the frequency of the ferocity of it actually felt bigger than the moment. And so there's something, I named the poem Dragon Mother, because there's something about this, like, this older, feminine, like, almost righteously jealous kind of frequency that's like, that's like looking at the young maiden who's trampling all over her and is like, don't forget. Yeah. That we're one. And that felt really cool because it felt like I gave a voice to something that was kind of like archaically big, mm. you know? And there was something about like the feeling of the the great feminine mother, the dragon mother of the earth that's like, young woman, tread lightly. Yeah. Have some respect. Yeah. And so it, it was, it's the most gangster. It's the most gangster way to approach that I've ever heard. It was fucking and it's so fire. out of character for me too, right? So like it's like I'm I'm using poetry and art and dance and all of these things, and I think this is so important for women. Is like we f- we know better than to go around like shooting the arrows and the fire of our jealousy and our pettiness and all these things. But it doesn't mean that we're not holding it, mm. and so we need outlets of expression where we get to give that a voice. And what happens is you get your power back. Yeah. Like I get to feel in my body the charge of being in the powerful mother that's like right. youngin. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I'm talking to myself too, you know? You know what's funny is I'd completely forgotten about this, but I wrote a similar poem once. Really? To like, I was like hopelessly smitten I mean, you told the story of when I was 26. Like 26-year-old, at that point, Chris Marcus was different than 20-year-old Chris Marcus. 20-year-old Chris Marcus had never, ever, one time gotten the girl that he was smitten about. Not once. I was <laughs> over. You know, I had I had lovely girlfriends and things that, you know, we just happened to kind of, 
I was looking one way and she was looking at me and I was like getting rejected over here. So I was like, yeah, all right, we'll do this. And, and it was beautiful, but never the one that I was really going for. And that carried on into college until like later half of my 21, 21st year. But I remember, <laughs> I remember the start of the poem. The poem was, I wish you were a better man. Yeah. <laughs> Strong like Jameson and smooth like James Dean. And then I just go in to say like how much I wish he was, but he's not, you know, hey. and it like goes through this whole thing. <laughs> like, I wish you were amazing. this and this and this, but, and then, and then like the final one is just like, but you're not, you know, and then I like twisted it around and it was too, I don't know which, I don't know which girl I was smitten with at that point. I have a whole list of them, their names etched in my memory <laughs> in one very pained journal that I still keep from that time period where I was writing in cursive like a old poet. But um, yeah, shout out to Miranda and Sally. And all of the, all <laughs> oh, of the... I love you. <laughs> yeah, um, shout out, ladies. Yeah. Look at them now. <laughs> But yeah, it's, there's something really powerful about, you know, poetry was my outlet then and uh, it still is now, you know, in, at the, in the pandemic when I felt like I had so many things to say that I was choking and I couldn't get them out because anything that you said you would just get attacked for. I just put them all into a poem and like just in the poetry of it was just able to like release it all and it felt like I could breathe again. You know, there's something really special about wrapping emotion in art mm -hmm. you know because really emotion it's almost better that way in in an art than it is in like words that are, can be dissected and taken apart and whatever there's something really cool about that yeah i think the art of it speaks to everyone mm -hmm. there's uh, there's this levity that comes in and this it's a it le levity in the sense that you're really lifting mm -hmm. to the inspiration of it being yeah. lifted by spirit and so even if something's um, like I, my, I love writers that just l lay it all out and and create like Nabokov is one of my favorites. He makes, you know, his book Lolita. I mean, could a subject be any cringier? But and it's it's fiction, although you read it and you couldn't imagine that he isn't just the living, breathing Humbert Humbert, the psyche of this man who has this fetish um, and obsession with uh, what he calls nymphets. But the whole, it's such a, being able to look at the human condition and not look away and not flinch. And it's like, even if it's aimed at you, I, you know, there's, if it, if it lands in, there's some levity that happens where you're like, respect to the art. Yeah, totally. Respect to the art, like serve it to me. I, yeah. I you know, I want that arrow. Mm -hmm. And we become, we become companions in creation, you know, from that, from that plane. Yeah. It, it universalizes it in yeah. a way and also makes it somehow palatable, even <laughs> if it's vicious. You know what I mean? Like if, if like even in even in those old like rap hip hop songs, you know, even in the songs from like Biggie and Tupac, you listen to those, they're fucking vicious. Yeah, was and it? you're like hit them uh, up or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also like Mickey Avalon and all the words too. And I'm like, first off, fuck you. I'm like, whoa, yeah. how do I know this? But you're yeah. just like okay. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. Lyrics like not even that not they weren't even like 
they were so raw. I think it was like, I fucked your bitch, you fat motherfucker, yeah. or something like that. Like, savage. Well, one of one of Tupac's songs. Was that the one, um, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just like goosebumps for some reason. Like, why am I having this reaction to this? Yeah, and Tupac's song, uh, Me and My Girlfriend, it's all about him and his gun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's like heaviness to connecting to that now, especially with everything that's, you know, going on with gun violence and all these things but as an art form it's like everything he's saying about his girl he's talking about his gun and when you listen to it that when you go wow you're a genius for yeah. making up some of these lyrics like i never saw i you can't tell because yeah. he's built that intimate relationship and so metaphor is this like gorgeous way to play with relationship to everything that makes it into art you're painting a picture of something universal with your unique experience, mm. which is really special. And this is how, and this is one of the things that you've been working with and that I love. It's like, this is how you get God to notice. Yeah. Tell yeah. us about that download. Yeah. Get God's, oh, this is, so I'm on a real rampage of, um, of just, having fun with life right now because there's something really special that I have realized through my personal experiences recently. We went and did another journey with El Dragon in Costa Rica, sitting with ayahuasca in May. And I had already um I had already been having these interesting synchronicity happens very loudly for me in my life, as you know, as one of my best friends and a lot of people reflect to me. And I think it's because um, synchronicity is basically a moment of magic that surpasses expectations and also connects to something familiar in you. So you go like, oh, I notice, I, you notice it. You notice it amongst, amongst the monotony of life. Some little magical moment happens where you think like, that's that seems magical. That doesn't make sense. That feels like a little miracle, the epiphany of a miracle in a moment where God gets you to notice. And so we're in um, Costa Rica, and what happened for me was this masterpiece of synchronicities that started as um, a lot of the same symbols coming through in my journey. And what happened in that moment was basically I had the most profound awakening, self-reclamation. The The medicine showed me everywhere that I wasn't myself, and I purged it out all night long, emotionally, vocally, and um, started to fall back in love with who I was from the very beginning. Birthday guy, the girl that was you know, in costume and love celebration and all of it. And I could see the the majesty of my soul. And like, this is what you're here to give, to help change the world, to help save the world. And as I moved through this experience, it was so meaningful to me and so profound. And I get back to my room and it all synthesizes on the toilet. And I'm having this like, oh my God, even the toilet paper roll fell off the toilet paper dispenser and rolled across the room. And I thought, oh, I hate that because it kept doing it the whole week. 
And then a part of me said, no, you don't. You love that. It reminds you of a party streamer. (laughs) (laughs) And as soon as I started clicking and taking ownership that there was a part of me that liked everything I'd ever been through. There was a part of me that liked the the chaos and the the weirdness and the goofiness. And it was like reclaiming in love all of these pieces of life that were of me too. Not happening to me, but created by me. And allowing myself to play in that sphere of co-creation and participation with the with the masterpiece of life. Um, I the the dawn began to glow through the window, and I saw the sky turn to a rainbow, and I could hear the architect birds outside like begin to kind of start their sonar orchestration of a new day. And I felt this is the dawn of my life where I never forget that I'm participating in it. And I felt this sudden gratitude for the toilet and how it had never been appreciated by me and by all of us for everything that it does for us, (laughs) like making our shit just disappear (laughs) and feeding it back into the world and creating new life from it, really. And I started to have this freak out moment of gratitude. Everything's beautiful. Everything goes full color. I'm just like, I'm in love with life. Everything's amazing. And I begin to leave the room to run out and see the dawn. And I see the toilet and I don't forget to thank it. And I turn over and I like look at it and I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And with all my heart. And that's the key. It was like wholehearted appreciation for what's happening around me all the time. And there's a little sign on the back of the toilet that suddenly just flips over and it's written by the hotel staff. But the first thing I see is thank you with an exclamation mark. And then the toilet starts to go. (laughs) I am not kidding. And it was one of those moments that you you can't describe unless you were there. But Eric, uh, my partner, comes in the room and he tries to fix it. And I said, no. I did it. <laughs> and then I described to him what happened. And I say with my whole heart again, I say, thank you. Thank you. And it goes, oh, calms back down. Stops, never did it again. And I get home and I, I begin to embark on 40 so days. So I was, I was up that same night and my toilet was doing the same. So you did it for all toilets. <laughs> Because your <laughs> no, your room was, was <laughs> your room was in the middle, but I still think it's you. But it transferred to all toilets because I remember wow, that sound. You could hear it. Yeah, and we also saw the same dawn. The yeah. dawn was fucking spectacular. It, it was, was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. It was a masterpiece. So, yeah. this was the beginning of my of my marveling at getting God to notice. I get home and I commit to forty days of dawn as a devotional gratitude practice for what I had felt that morning and to anchor it. And this is one of an example of ways that I take this guidance and I apply it to my life with radical trust that I might not understand, it might exhaust me, but I was I felt the call to do this and I trust that it's for me and that it's serving me in some way that I can't necessarily understand until I move through it. But I'm in my, my dawn devotional and I have another moment like this with my alarm clock where I had this magnificent moment with a hummingbird. I'm connecting to the the majesty of life, and then my alarm clock goes off right as I have this moment of epiphany. And instead of being upset at it, I turned to my phone and I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I felt something happen around me that I, 
I could never do justice trying to describe, but it was as though everything collapsed and I felt a sentient presence enveloping me in in the most radical mind-bending way that felt like it responded to me saying thank you by being mm. there with me. And I had this sudden connection that when you do something novel like that, something out of the ordinary, something that no one ever does, you get God to notice. And when God notices, then you open the miracle frequency. Then you're playing in participation and dialogue with the divine. And I immediately gaslit that notion. Like, God doesn't, you don't need to get God to notice. God sees all. God notices everything. Mm -hmm. And that's when it really dialed. And it was like, God, my thought was God is, is not busy. And then I realized God is busy because we are God. Have we ever been less busy as God than we are at this time? Completely consumed by our devices and our busy schedules and our calendars and this idea that there's not enough time and da 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 and it goes on and on. And, and God's busy because we're God. And we have to participate and do something different to break that bubble of story that there's no time and that we're so busy. And when we break that bubble of story by doing something novel and disruptive, we're basically creating the, the synchronicity frequency through our actions. We're doing something that gets God to notice the same way God gets us to notice through the synchronicities that we're given. And so we start this fascinating dialogue with the divine where we're suddenly playing in the creator frequency. And we're like, okay, we're, we're here. Like I'm here with the divine. I'm not here in this. And, and it, what's beautiful is it is being radically present to the moment, but it's also zooming out of the tunnel vision of the one story specific that story it. that you yeah. have about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's this is there's a lot of things that I'm currently and currently been digesting that <clears throat> support this. Number one, the Kabbalion, which is the wisdom of Hermes Trismegistus, known in ancient Egypt as Thoth. And if you talk to Matthias de Stefano, like we did, he was an actual being, a being that lived a thousand years, who had very pale skin, wore robes, and lived in the ancient times. And it's, it was an actual being that Matthias wow. remembers, but ultimately. Um, recorded these information that went through mystery schools. There's the em emerald tablets that were downloaded. There's a whole different lineage of ways, but it reemerged in like 1906 in the Kabbalion. And the first principle, this first hermetic principle, which I'm hoping to talk about all these hermetic principles with Robert Grant, which will be a lot of fun. But all is mind, the universe is mental, right? So that's the first principle from Hermes, from Thoth, is all is mind, the universe is mental. And I discovered this when I was trying to write the book, Master Your Mind, Master Your Life. And I got to 60,000 words three times and failed on all of them because I could not extricate the mind from everything else. I couldn't separate adequately separate the mind from the body, the mind from the spirit, the mind from the field of all mind. So it's either all part of the same thing or all interrelated and interwoven in a way, just different densities of the same substrate. And so one way to look at it, it's all just language, but you know, all is mind, the universe is mental, or all is light, the universe is, you know, fucking radiant. Whatever. You could say it a different way, but 
saying it in mind and mental, I think is really, really key. And I think it's also been echoed in a, this recent book that I'm reading by, by Neville, who is really talking about that everything in the Bible was written as an allegory of God being our own mind, God being mind, and all of the stories are just the psychodramas of the mind realizing itself and realizing itself in fullness. And then, of course, Gaffney, who's you know writing how the universe is a universal love story, and it's all one story. So he uses story as the substrate, that it's a story that's being written. But in all of these different things, they all they all mesh with what you're saying, which is do something that actually gets you to radically notice in a radically unique way that's because you're participating in mind. And then the whole field itself, as you discover something novel, the whole field discovers something novel because it's novel through your lens. And so it's never actually been seen by the universe. If you see something new, mm. it has never been seen by God because you are seeing it as wow. God. So it's you seeing or experiencing something and it's and that's there's a delight in that just like there's a delight in us of course the entire mind the entire god the entire consciousness field the entire i am field delights in that moment of the radical newness and what creates the radical newness is your unique self having a unique perception or living a unique story Yes, and there's there's so many ways to, once you have that little pearl, it's like, it's really powerful in my experience when it is emergent and wholehearted, but you can also, and usually that happens without any planning, like the, the, the potency and the power of a moment that you don't expect and you aren't, you aren't engineering in any way is so powerful. And you can use that awareness to, create choice points for yourself where you do the novel thing. Mm. So what is anti-novel addiction? Mm. Every time you, if you have a choice point, and this is this is like a different frequency than like, oh, I've got to stop or I shouldn't do this. Should, this isn't about shouldn't. This is about doing something unexpected, yep. you know? And like, so starting to just play with that instead of like, being so hard on yourself that it has to be this way or shouldn't be this way. But starting to just play with that is like, what do I expect to happen? And this, I think, comes back to the all is mine thing. I would venture to say that a lot of reality gener is generated off what we expect. Mm. It's. I'll just venture to say that and just yeah. leave it there. Um, if that's why it's so exciting when something unexpected happens. But if we can lay that down and just start to open that something completely unexpected might happen, we make room for it to become possible. Little by little by little. One God as one of us makes room for the unexpected to happen. Then we're in, again, being able to call forward those quantum leap miracle moments into potentiality just by saying it could happen. And I think that's why it's so exciting when these things happen that feel like magic because it blows away our expectations and then it gives us hope that maybe the thing that we hope could happen for the world that doesn't make any sense, but maybe it could happen mm. now because this little thing just yeah. happened. And then we're actually creating the space for that to be possible. Yeah. Yeah, the... 
there's so much energy in when you actually carve into fresh powder, into a fresh new story. We did this with Arcadia yeah. collectively, and this was like the big invitation that I had for everybody. It was like, we're in fresh powder. Like mm-hmm. we're, in a, we're in a new story, and we get to be a new a new iteration, a new evolution of ourself in this new story, in this new place, in this new community, in this new way of looking at things, a, do- a completely donation-based festival with all of these opportunities and all, everything that was there. It was like, we're already in a new story, so let's take it as far as it can go. But in every little micro moment, we get those chances. Like, and And those are the moments that even in like a party setting, you know, like when you and Vailana get up and dance to the look, you, yeah. know, now, you know, and like you just go for it. You do your Michael Jackson thing or Soraya does her, you know, Mambo, Mambo number, number five, five or like these things that are always available, but, but you can just catch it. You can just catch a buzz of like a moment where you're into something and you'll feel the energy swell. And sometimes you want to cower back because it's like, oh man, that's, Oh, that's a lot, you know, but if when you step into it, there's so much energy that's released in that. And it's like, that's when you know that you are in full presence and you as God and the, and participating in the collective capital G God. Yeah. They're really paying attention. (laughs) And then everybody else around you is like, oh shit, look at that. (laughs) You know, and it's a, it's really special. So I think all of us can practice finding and getting to these moments when we feel that energy of oh maybe i shouldn't you know unless it's something dangerous or stupid totally do it yeah i can do it i felt that at the end of my talk when i was speaking about the wizard of oz and i suddenly felt like seeing somewhere over the rainbow yeah and it was just like a part of me was like no don't and i was like yeah just do everyone paused and centered and started singing with me yeah that's novel. Yeah. That's surprising. And we can, so it doesn't always have to be not doing a thing. It'd be doing even better. Do Just do the thing. That little, and this I think goes back to just, it's in our intuition for all of us, male, female, it doesn't matter. We have those little, those little inklings like, oh, I should just, I should do that. No, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, that's too much. That's, I don't know how. That was my story for so long. I don't know how. Yeah. Well, this is a ridiculous masterpiece that we're living in here, Caitlin. (laughs) It's a ridiculous masterpiece. And I cannot fathom doing it without you in any way. Hmm. I just can't fathom. It just doesn't even make sense. So I love you and thanks. I love you too. Thanks for not giving up on me. <laughs> <laughs> now, now the tables are turned. And I, now I don't got give you. Up on I me. will stab someone in the neck. <laughs> Just <laughs> I'm here yeah. for it all. I'm here for it all. Yeah. Thank you so much for this uh, this adventure that we're on and what we what we get to do together. And um, I'm really honored to be on your podcast today. Look yeah, at this sure. life. Look at this. It's it, it's really really exciting to walk this journey and walk each other home. Mm-hmm. Follow her at the Boa Queen on Instagram. For now, that's the best place, I think. But there's going to be many more things. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Many more things. Dances, workshops, events, more Arcadia. Yeah. And if you want to come hang with us in Sedona in October for Fit for Service, we'll be out there. 
Please, He'll be please, leading please. an ecstatic dance. Well, maybe Parangi will do that one out there, but maybe we'll do two. I'll Who be the leading fuck knows? something. You'll be leading something novel awesome, and we'll be getting God to notice. It's going to be great. So just yeah, yeah. I'll keep you guys posted. Um, yeah, thanks for having me and and helping me become the woman that I am today. Thanks for helping me become the man that I am. <laughs> Love everybody. Love Bye-bye. you. Thanks for tuning into the podcast, everyone. Please follow Caitlin at the Poet Queen on Instagram. And if you're interested in joining any of our Fit for Service programs, at Fit for Service on Instagram or fitforservice.com.